Okay, I'll just. But he doesn't have the nuclear football. No. Okay. <laughs> oh my God, this is just going to be bad. Okay, here okay. we go. Here we go. We're going to start officially. Touchdown. <laughs> okay, welcome to the inaugural broadcast of Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of Flash of Steel, your podcast for strategy gaming on the PC board and. I guess more and more the consoles. This is your host, Troy Goodfellow. And with me today are some very interesting and guests with some very strong opinions. With me tonight on the regular panel with Tom Chick. Hello. Hi. Uh, I have a coffee here. If I can get anyone a coffee, let me know. I'll, I'm on that. If anybody in the course of this podcast would like a coffee, let me know and I'll run into the kitchen and get you one. Who wants a coffee from me? today who wants a coffee hello everyone I, I have a coffee here if anyone needs one uh let me know and i'll go get you one you're gonna say that every week aren't you i'm trying to make that my catchphrase <laughs> is it is it taking freelance writer julian murdoch i i want to start the unofficial podcast of three moves ahead of uh, flash of steel what would that be like two moves ahead julian murdoch I didn't know there was going to be inebriation. I, I need to like go stock up if, if inebriation's allowed. Well, it's always allowed. And Dr. Bruce Garrick? Hello, gamers. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your nerd voice? No. Who said? Good nerd voice. It was a very good nerd voice. Hello, yes. gamers. <laughs> and Dr. Bruce Garrick? Hello, gamers! I am your host, Troy Goodfellow, and with me today is a new panel. We have regular panelist, freelance writer Tom Chick. Uh, before we launch into this too too far, I just want to uh, ask one thing, and mm -hmm. that's whether or not I can get you a cup of coffee. Um, yeah? I would love coffee, um, but I'm working on the scotch first. Hey, who's that? Yeah, there you go. Uh, the I was just talking. The other voice is... Uh, Mr. Rob Zachney, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashSteel.com, and this is episode number 100. Um, I have uh, done something I thought I would never, ever do, and it's not something I actually plan to do. Male, male um, prostitution? He killed a hooker. I, 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 I said something that I, that I never planned to do. Now, uh, I have taken a job in the industry, so I've passed on the hosting organization duties to my adopted son. Hello, everyone. This is uh, Rob here. Uh, I'm with Troy. We're going to tell you a little bit about an announcement you may have heard about online uh, regarding a partnership we've formed with Idle Thumbs. Our brand new business partners and our good friends, the Idle Thumbs gang, starting with Chris Remo. Hello. Awesome. <laughs> See, that's the Sean Vanneman. Hey, guys. How's it going? And Jake Rodkin. Hello. Hey. <laughs> it was, you just did full Garth. I know. Hi. I, I, I like right. to play. Uh, all right, everybody. Uh, talk to you soon on another episode of Three Moves Ahead. To Three Moves Ahead, episode 250, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me is the founder of this Centennial and a Half podcast, Bicentennial and a Half podcast, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome to the show. It has been almost five years, and I cannot freaking believe this. 
No, it's kind of astonishing. I remember uh, when you started this thing, and I was listening to the first episodes, it was kind of an open-ended but implied short-term thing for you. Well, it was more that I was not quite sure we could keep it going. Uh, my plan was to keep this going. Every, you know, every few weeks or so, I'd do a show, but um, I was pushed by my panel to do it every week, and here we are. Um, we've missed a few weeks here and there, but here we are five years later, and I'm quite thrilled to still be doing it. And I think fittingly enough, we're going to be t doing a, an episode on a game tonight that I think is kind of c trying to revisit some of the glory days that we return to a lot on this show. Mm -hmm. uh, today we're talking about uh, Proxy Studios' Pandora, published by Matrix Games, which was sort of marketed as the spiritual successor to Alpha Centauri, uh, which certainly made our ears perk up. Uh, so we've been playing this, playing with this for a week and, uh, you know, sort of comparing notes and thinking about what's changed since Alpha Centauri and the, the design decisions made here. And, uh, also brought us, you know, back to mind of some of our favorite episodes that, uh, you know, we, where we've talked about Alpha Centauri, uh, including an episode we did with Brian Reynolds, uh, our long awaited episode with Brian Reynolds, uh, that we finally got done. And we will be posting a transcript of that episode later this week, uh, provided by Rev.com, uh, a transcription service that I am increasingly using for my own professional work. Uh, they are very cool, fast turnaround, and a pretty good rate. Uh, so if you're looking for transcriptionists, Rev.com is actually a pretty cool service that uh, I'm enjoying using. But rather than talk about the glory days of Alpha Centauri, let's talk about Pandora. Troy... What do you think of it? I'm not quite sure how to situate it. It really is trying to be Alpha Centauri in many ways. It has, it is a 4X game. It is an empire building game set in a foreign planet where the different sides are factions. And they're very similar factions you would find in Alpha Centauri. They are religious people and science people and communists and industrialists, all the same sorts of factions you would find in Alpha Centauri. But in spite of that, it feels quite different from Alpha Centauri in a lot of good ways. And you can see the ways that it doesn't, the negative ways, you can just chalk up to budget. There are things that just they just cannot afford. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a lot of aping of Alpha Centauri and where it deviates is both, in some ways, frustrating because it goes into a... We'll talk about the, the opening part of the game, which is quite, quite annoying. Um, but there's a lot of there are a lot of really really good ideas in Pandora, and this is a game I did not think I would like as much as I do. It is a game that is full of um, streamlining, full of simplicity, full of clarity, and then it beats you in the ass. Uh, and I kind of like that. Yeah, I, you know, I, it was a game I definitely came into with. I tend to get very protective of Alpha Centauri, right? Right, you know, if you're if you're going to be saying, well, we're the we're the spiritual successor, I'm going to be the guy being like, well, we'll just see about that, Sparky. But I was actually really impressed by a lot of the decisions they made. I I really liked. I, I think it's a gorgeous looking game. Uh, I, I know this is Proxy Studios. I think is actually a very small studio. Uh, I, I, if you've read um, Dan Griliopoulos's, uh pieces about his contributions to the game because he did some writing for them mm -hmm. uh he describes it as just you know a, a 
three-person team, I think, that he basically worked with that did most of this game. And it really does look and sound, you know, first-rate. Uh, it, it's it's a really impressive game, and except for uh, the font, the text font is terrible. Yeah, it's it's a little everything could be bigger. Everything could stand to be bigger and a little clearer. But that is that aside. Yeah, that aside, I, I think they could largely succeeded in making a spiritual successor to Alpha Centauria much more than I expected they would. But that early game. We got to talk about that because if you want to talk about like I love when theme and mechanics go together, but this is a case of theme coming out of the tree line and eating your mechanics. Yeah, well, let's, let's begin at the beginning before we get into all the very neat stuff that Pandora does because it does a whole lot of neat stuff. So don't listen to this early game bitching and think, "Oh God, I should not play this because there are ways around it." But when I played it. I thought, okay, they want to be the spiritual successor of Alpha Centauri, but I'm playing this and I think, oh, this is elemental. This is the wasteland eating my guys, because this is a hostile alien environment. Now, Alpha Centauri had a hostile alien environment, but they gradually became more hostile. Alpha Centauri was a lot like colonization, where the people who were there, the natives or the fungus, they were tolerant of you to begin with, and then they began to hate you over and over time. Pandora is more like uh, Elemental or Fallen Enchantress, where the entire, everything outside of your city wants to kill you, and will actively try to kill you, and a few turns in will start sacking your cities if you don't have a soldier there. And this is something that kind of, I'm not going to say breaks, but it alters the, the traditional calculus of a 4X game, which is all about, first you explore, and then you explore, you realize where you are, and you plan around your exploration. Pandora, you almost need to hunker down first, and then you know, build troops to you know, bug hunt or protect your settlers, just in case they get hostile at the wrong time. Yeah, and... I think that creates some problems uh, because ultimately you're playing a strategy game against other factions like Civ that yes. way. And so you begin with – it starts to feel much more like in some ways realistic, right? Like if you have sort of the geography is destiny theory of civilizations, this game kind of feels like that at times because yeah. it starts just like you know Alpha Centauri does. Your ship comes down, you make planet fall, God knows where. And I've had some starting locations that are actually pretty safe, pretty easy to contain and uh, start colonizing. But I've also had a lot where it's like, you know, on three sides, I've got like monster layers nearby, these hives. God help you for the near, near tundra in this game. Because tundra, I mean, Civ's never going to start you near tundra. This game will start you in an ice cap uh, if it has any randomization that is worth a damn. And surrounded with aliens and hives who are apparently all in parkas, you know, living very comfortably in the poles. Yeah, they don't look like they belong there entirely. And the other thing, yeah, it's 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 a little like Elemental, but at least Elemental has sort of that RPG thing of right. the monsters won't bug you unless you bug them in a lot of cases. And you know what I mean? If you're sort of below their notice, you just give them a little birth, and they're not going to come kick your ass. Here, you're going to have things right from you know the word go. You will have monsters that are actually more powerful than the first tanks. You, can, you can't even build tanks yet. But when you can, they will still not be as good as these, like, evil brontosauri that are wandering around outside your town. Yeah. 
I mean, your settlers to explain this. Your your base soldier will start with like a strength of two, and meanwhile, wandering all around your hinterland, there's there are monsters. So called monsters is probably a prejudicial term. There are alien creatures with you know strength of four times that. This is kind of standard. Yeah, and so you end up, you know, you can't expand early, and like if you try to expand early, the chances are you end up losing a ton of resources because your escort caravan kind of gets ambushed by a bunch of monsters and aliens. And, uh, you know, then everything's dead. And what you've lost is the equivalent of like 30, 40 turns worth of production. Uh, and now you have no army and now you're more vulnerable again. You have to do the entire thing over again. So I found myself sort of forced in a lot of cases to have these really drawn out early games where I'm basically not exploring. I'm just stacking troops in my city and trying to research up to tech that will let me move out and take the offensive, which is kind of cool from a thematic standpoint. Cause I think yes. this is kind of how it, this yeah. is, it kind of feels right. Right. It requires an adjustment, and it, it certainly does fit the theme perfectly. It requires some rethinking. Um, you can't think of this as like Civ. It is a spirit success inventory, which is in the Civ line, but it does take a very different, I'm not sure if it's intentional or not, I will, I will argue that it probably is, a very different approach to what it's like to land on an alien environment, that you need to get your troops out first and get them all killing what's around you, uh, or, or taming, because you actually tame a few troops here and there. Um, that's one of the early technologies you can research. You can, you know, convert aliens to your side, which helps quite a bit. Uh, but really, it is about hunkering down, building a space for yourself, and then trying to figure out what you do with that space. It's really a game where you're early. People are more familiar with civilization, where you know you have the warriors, the barbarians wandering around. They're really not much of a threat. They're annoying, but they're not going to you know take your cities uh, in all likelihood. This game isn't quite like that. They the aliens really are your first enemy. You need to spend your actually your first probably third of the game making sure none of the AI is AI factions are attacking you while you're just wiping out natives. This is really a manifest destiny kind of approach to colonizing an alien planet. Yeah, it's 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 kind of nifty. It, it, I like I like the sort of deliberate um, expeditionary feel a lot of the early game has yeah. because of this. Like, when you finally start your move out and you finally start, like, you know, creeping up on an enemy, uh, on an alien hive and, you know, positioning your troops and blasting the hell out of it and rolling over it and then seeing what what, what else is out there in the broader world and looking for a new location, um, that's all very cool. It, it, it has a different feel. What, what bothers me, I guess, is that... <laughs> I kind of feel like I mean I can't I can't see what the what the AI is dealing with. Right. But I'm always kind of astonished how far along they are when I encounter them because it's like how how the hell are you over here with this much when I've spent, you know, the the same amount of the game just trying to clear out, you know, a 6 hex radius around my city. What, what like what are you doing here with your your battleships and your attack jets? What what's happened? 
Yeah, I can never quite figure out the pacing of the AI at different levels, what bonuses they get. Um, if there's a strategy I'm kind of missing, is there a way of dealing with the aliens that I don't quite understand yet? Uh, but I don't think there is. It's, the technology tree is very clear on what can and can't happen with certain technologies. Um, I don't. I think the AI just starts. The AI, the aliens just start getting pissed off after a certain amount of expansion, and start killing things. And I think they're more likely to target you than they are the AI. And that may reflect, you know, some lack of confidence uh, of the. Uh, developers in the AI they've developed, whether they can clear out aliens or not. Um, I don't mind a little bonus here and there, but I do kind of getting, get a, I, I'm like, I feel a little bit surprised to show up at, you know, Sister Mary's headquarters or whatever her name is, and she's just, she's a research penalty, and she's just flying around in hoverboards, and I'm like, what the hell is this? So... Yeah, and boy, that also seems to be a true, true to the spirit of Alpha Centauri. It seems like there's a couple factions that tend to rise to the top and be badasses, and uh, it's the religious one. They get a nice bonus. Uh, I mean, their 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 research bonus is, is is harsh. They have a harsh research bonus, but you know you can do research treaties, and you sign enough research treaties, and you can mitigate that quite quickly. Uh, especially if you sign that with, if the fundamentalist Ken Ham people sign this with the research faction, with the, I'm not even sure what they're called, so I'm just used to thinking of Alpha Centauri terms. Togra University. Togra University. Uh, if the religious people sign a deal with Togra University, then their religious, then their research pact is pretty much negates any penalty they're suffering for being fundamentalists. Um, and it's, but, you know, the, the, whole, the, the pace of research, you know, assigning your scientists and your workers, there's quite a bit of neat micromanagement here and there that uh, you don't get in a lot of the Civ-like games, where often you let your city run on default. Uh, you'll trust that the computer will put your, the next population in the right place. But there's actually a lot of neat... Um, manipulation of the workers within the cities of, okay, I really need food now, and I'll put this guy in food, so I'll move to a research building right now, and it's a lot of swapping back and forth that I never did a lot of in the Civ games. I probably could have if I was really anal about it, like some of these Civ, like many Civ players are. But I think that Pandora kind of pushes you to look deeper into your city, even if it's just a, okay, I'm going to hire a worker here and a researcher here. I don't really need a farmer here. I'm just going to change my buildings there. It's a very simple, clear, elegant system that makes the city decisions that affect your large strategic decisions quite apparent. Um, and I really like how clear the interface is and that allows me to figure how to ca if I run into someone who's further ahead than I am I know where, what cities I should go to to move people into into scientists and take people off farmers yeah you know that's that's something else is with the city management I do tend to do a little more micromanagement in Civ and I always feel a little bit like I'm also fighting Civ to let me do it 
Right. Um, and part of that's just because the AI has, a, if, you, if, you, if you let the AI stand as default, it's going to default to growth. It wants to grow yes. the city. Um, and so you'll come back and you'll be like, wait, what, 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 why are these workers here and here? Like, no, we're, you're a research city. And so you kind of have to break that and force it to force it to go against what it initially wants to do and prioritize what you want to prioritize. But nevertheless, I always feel like it's never quite able to like keep the exact balance I want. It grows itself into problems. Uh, this is a game where I find it much easier to specialize settlements yep. uh, in a way that I struggle to sometimes in Civ. Well, they had to patch in the option to just set a city for growth. It's one of their, you've built everything you can, what should you build? Growth had to be patched in. They didn't have growth as a default, which I thought was a really neat approach to building cities. The idea that your city shouldn't just be about being the biggest or the largest. It should have a job to do. I guess there were complaints or something. So they had to patch in the idea of, oh, this is a city that can specialize in growth, which I suppose has some bonuses long way down the road, though the penalties for building a city that's too large are quite nasty uh, in this game. Uh, so I really, I think you're right. This is a city, this is a game where you could specialize and you could focus. And the manipulation wasn't about, you know, do I take them off this square or this hex and put them somewhere else? So this whole matrix on the left-hand side of the city management, oh, this is a worker, this is a scientist, and you just move them around uh, like little meeples. It's like a worker placement game uh, within your cities, which is really quite neat um, and, and very clear. And you can see all the bonuses line up very nicely so you don't have a starving city. Uh, and you can see all your penalties for building or construction within that. And the city management screen is quite a... It, it's a testament to what, you know, a couple of people with a great idea of how to transmit information can give you. Yeah, yeah, it, it absolutely is. And I also like that they've, they've got sort of a, they sort of split the difference between resource management in, uh, you know, modern Civ as opposed to older Civs, where now you've got, you don't have resources like, you know, oil or steel or all that stuff. But you do have minerals, which are required to – they're the raw materials that you use to construct uh, your, your, your equipment, which is kind of a – it gives the economy kind of an RTS feel in some ways, which is very nice because, you know, you know now you don't just have this generic – productivity thing which is the, the the shield in civ basically right like it represents both your resources and the workers to turn them into something here this is much more like no 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 no. you've got the resources but then how many people do you actually have working in the factories to process it into a tank uh and so that just it, it makes it that much clearer where it's like oh you got a city in the mountains that doesn't have to become a production center just because it's got a lot of shields or whatever. What it has is a lot of minerals. And so you can just extract the hell out of the minerals there, but not worry about it starving to death so much because other cities are doing the farming. Uh, I kind of I, I kind of enjoy the, the, the way you can sort of scaffold your empire up uh, using the system. Well, it has this whole, it has an empire feel. It really does feel like it's a global empire and it doesn't ask you to move food from one city to the next. You trust that the cities are tell, are moving their food where it needs to be and the minerals where they need to be. So you aren't, it isn't like, for as much as I love the Civilization series, a lot of it feels like 
they're all of these cities who are only sort of kind of connected by language or culture or because you're their boss. They're not really connected in any infrastructure way besides the roads you build. Pandora says, oh, there are minerals and there are, there's food and it gets where it needs to get. And you put your workers wherever they need to be. And don't you worry about the trucks driving from one city to the next. And I kind of like that larger perspective. Oh, absolutely. It's it, it's it's nice to have a game keep your attention kind of where it should be. And I feel like this even extends a little bit to the customization. I say a little bit because oh, yeah. I, still, I still run into some problems with the customization. Oh, yeah? Just... Just in that, it. We're on the unit unit customization. Yes, and uh, it, it's it's very much like like Alpha Centauri, uh, where you've got you know unit chassis and unit modules that give them special abilities, and uh, then you just sort of keep, like lay armor and weapon systems onto the chassis, and uh, you know that's that's your new that's your new model, and. What I what I appreciate is that it doesn't actually spam you with default designs the way Alpha Centauri did, uh, because right. after a point Alpha Centauri was just like, "Do you want twenty crappy versions of infantry?" And it was like, "No, Alpha Centauri, no, I do not. Uh, I would like two, uh, but thank you." This is this is a little more. Uh, this is kind of like you deal with unit customization when you want to. And it's very it's it's very simple and easy to just sort of breeze through it, right? So I, so I do like that. Um, where I run into trouble a little bit, and I'm I'm sure this is just kind of a budget thing. The art looks fine, but units tend to look very similar. Their icons tend to look very similar, and that has led to more than a few uh, blunders on the field of battle. When I pick what I think is my tank, no, it's my artillery. But now I move my artillery out of you know its safe hiding position, moved it adjacent to a giant enemy stack, <laughs> and then it you know pokes away at them, and then it's ways to get killed the next turn. That's kind of frustrating. So stuff like that is just like unit like unit designs can be very specialized. The way they're represented in the game world tends to be sort of very samey, and that can create big problems for identifying what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I like the unit customization in general. It's, it, it's quite simple. There aren't a lot of things you can change uh, between the units. I mean, Alpha Centauri, one of the problems was you could change almost goddamn everything. Uh, as Brian Reynolds said on the show, it just ended up being a mess and uh, a bad idea that he wasn't a big fan of. I think Pandora, by keeping it focused on, you know, the basic unit type, what type of weapon, what type of special device does it have? I think they've done a great job in keeping unit customization useful because there are certain strengths to customizing at certain times uh, and also quite clear. But yeah, I mean, I've often you know, selected an infantry person to clean out like a hive or a stack of enemy infantry thinking it was a flamethrower dude. Oh no, you're not a flamethrower dude at all. So you've got nothing. You're just going to get shoot your bullets and die. Where well, we really need when the opportunity calls for a flamethrower, uh, and you don't know that until you see the animation of oh that's not flames, those are bullets. You're a dead dude now. And so it's not the representation could be clearer. There could be a way to, I guess, in the iconography of the units or to have more color yeah. in the iconography. There, I mean, it's really, it's, it's gray. What, what device is this? It's a gray device. It looks like a gear 
or a flame in a gear or a gear in a gear. Uh, what you really need is a little bit more color uh, in the iconography, and I think that would help a lot to show the great flexibility and variety available in the uh, unit customization, which I am a big fan of, how simple it is. I mean, I, w I wish there was an easier way to choose, I want this city building just flamethrowers and this city just building whatever, which isn't necessarily always that simple. Because I think the workshop is just you have one default unit and that's that. The, the workshop's a little fussy. You have to create a copy of a design before you can modify. You right. know what I mean? So you can't yeah. have if you change if you like take a tank chassis and then yeah. add an artillery piece to it, you've actually just turned your tank, all the tanks you will ever produce into, into artillery. In, into artillery. Right. So you actually have to copy the tank, then rename the damn thing. And so stuff like that. It's a, it's a little yeah. bit of a fussy thing. But it, once you once you figure it out, it's not that bad. Sure. I mean, I mean, but that that sort of thing that should be really automatic. It took me a while to figure that out. Um and it only applies to units after you've built that or discovered that uh, technology. So every every tank chassis want to want to build artillery. You discover artillery, and only every tank you build after you discover artillery will get artillery. Everything you've put in the queue before that has the old model, and you might you can erase those and put them back in, but that then you've lost turns. So it's not quite there could be easier ways of determining what am I building and when. Um, and like you said, the graphics on the screen should be clearer of what type of unit is this. But the designs themselves are very nice. Uh, the idea of the devices. I love the devices and how you can specialize units for very different tasks here and there. Um, some are just for defense. Some are just for capturing aliens uh some are for uh radar uh type things and i think i really like that type of very stark specialization i do too but here's the thing this is this is where i become ambivalent about what i think is actually a very good sort of customization system because everything has this is a game that offers so much specialization mm -hmm. you know what i mean like it really you know it behooves you to create a good anti-air platform. It, you should also probably create a good mobile anti-air platform. Then you should create an air superiority platform. You know what I mean? You should have all these yep. things. But then, what are you going to be fighting? Are there going to be enemy tanks you're going to have to deal with? Are you going up against big aliens? You, like, you have to think about, what am I going to be running into here? And sort of tune your force composition around that. Which is really cool. Up to a point. The, the, the problem is, you start running into this... You start running into this thing where there are so many weird matchups now you've got to keep in your head. You know what I mean? Like, okay, so this guy's going to get a 50% bonus against air units and, you know, but then nothing else. Or this guy's going to have a 25% bonus against any sort of mechanical unit, but he's going to be crap against any sort of biological unit. So this is this is the sort of stuff you got to be worrying about. And then with the modules... The little variations between these units that are out there, which matter a great deal, and uh, yeah. it's kind of fun to sit there in the workshop and think about how you want your army to function together. Because these aren't small bonuses. These aren't like plus one, plus, these are like plus 25%, plus 50%. Right. It really does, these modules make a huge difference in a battle. Right, this is not a game, well, this is mostly not a game where you can just brute force it. Yeah. 
Um, and so it definitely, you definitely need the right tool for the right job. But the problem is there's so many different tools and there's so many different jobs that it just begins to feel like it just be, it begins to feel it's a little hard to keep in your head, even as you're trying to figure out just in the design room, what it's, what, what, what its purpose is all going to be. Then right. you take it out into the world and it's kind of like, okay, do you just bring this bag of anonymous, you know, of, of multi-purpose tools with you in your army and then just, you know, go out there, try to run into something and try to remember what does what. That's a little bit, that's kind of where I start to part ways with this, where there's just, there's maybe just a little too much that I need to keep track of. And I think that only bothered me so much because of some of the font choices and UI stuff that's happening. It's not as, it's not as at a glance for me to tell what's going to happen in a, uh, in a given encounter. Right. No, I'm with you on that. I mean, there's a lot of the choices on, I think that the interface itself is great, but the choice of colors uh, and buttons uh, could be a lot better. Um, and in the basic graphics, I mean, how do I know what exactly I'm fighting? Is this, What kind of tank is this? Now, at least it does give you the percentage uh, chance of victory for any attack, which is great. you got to hold that down, and it tells you your likelihood of victory. Yeah. Um, which is quite handy, but you're, it's a stack attacking a stack, so you can't tell always all the way down which units are going to get damaged, which ones aren't. Um, the whole air and artillery thing mixes things up in other neat little ways. I mean, I might win this air encounter, but I might be too weak for the next one uh, based on the other units coming up because I don't know what exactly this thing is on the next hex behind me. Uh, so it's kind of they could do a little bit better with the differentiation of units, uh, but in general, I'm a bit, I I do like the customization. Um, it requires paying a lot more attention mm-hmm. to. Um, it's not as readily apparent. The iconography is not as a thing of Civ Five's iconography with its uh, the bonuses, the level ups you give your units when they get experience is generally quite clear. Um, even after just a couple of sessions, what each little symbol means. Uh, this one isn't quite at that level, but it does have very clear numbers. The percentages are there. It does require a little bit more attention, I think, than a uh, larger budget uh, 4X game mm-hmm. would. Uh, so I'll certainly give it you know, credit for what it has done uh, on a small team and just having built an, a, a very nice, elegant, simple customization system it should give you better information on, you know, what this customer unit is going to be running into out there. Uh, but I really do like what they've done with it. Now, I kind of felt, though, like they sort of let themselves into a Stacks of Doom problem here. Yes. Yes. Like, I, I dug how, and maybe this is another reason why the customization started to feel a little bit unsatisfying for, unsatisfying for me, is that... It seems like there'd be a lot of these cool sort of rock, paper, scissors uh, interactions happening. But one thing the AI does a lot, and you quickly learn to do it too, is pile as many units as you can together in a hex and just roll up. Uh, because you basically can't kill a stack that's that strong, um, you know, if, it's, if it stays on the defensive. It's just, it's right. very hard. Yeah, I mean, this is certainly a problem that, I mean... 
that Civ Five, uh, for all of its issues when it first came out, addressed by saying, "Look, stacks of Doom are a bad thing." I mean, the maps here are the maps aren't necessarily great. You're not going to see a whole lot of really interesting things happening on the map, uh, but the rolling stacks of doom is a problem. Uh, you see it with the aliens in the very early part of the game. Um, and you see it with, certainly with the AI later on, they'll just pile unit on top of unit on top of unit. And you have to do that same thing, which makes a lot of the map kind of pointless. And if you're smart or devious, you can just do an end run around the stack of doom because they only support so many units with their minerals and their food. You can end run and then just take out a city uh, going around it. And that's an issue with the AI. And it's kind of problems uh, on that end. Um, I wish there was a way to make the stacks of Doom or to get away the stacks of Doom, to have a limit on how many units or the amount of offensive, defensive power you can have in a hex. I, I do like the idea of stacking units to an extent. Um, the idea of having an offensive and defensive unit in the same place. I think that's a nice... It's a nice way to use a hex, at least. Um, but the, I, the stacks of doom do become an issue, and it is that's you know it's kind of traditional, right? That's what Alpha Centauri did. I mean, that's what most 4x games have done. Uh, that there's no limit on a geographic space uh, for number of people in it, right? Yeah, I just I'm not saying it's a good thing. No, but... no, no, no. And I, I was sort of surprised because in so many ways, like. I sort of initially took the hex, the, the the presence of hexes in this game as sort of being a you know taking a cue from uh you know from Civ Five. Now I think it might have just been taking a cue from this is you know a war game publisher's uh, take on Alpha Centauri. Uh, it, it it comes from maybe a bit more of a war gamey background. Um, we're, trying I, to have, we're trying to have both Civ Four and Civ Five yeah. from the same thing. I mean hexes are you know they're an old traditional format and I'm sure proxy has their own reason reason doing a hex there are lots of good reasons to have hex maps yes um and you know a lot of war games throughout history have had hexes and a lot of stacking yeah uh so that's i i i don't think it's i mean the thing is this this is a solved problem um for a 4x game this is a solved problem and they just ignored the solution which is you know you have to have some sort of limit there otherwise so much of the map isn't useful. It becomes kind of irrelevant. You're just moving your stacks from one place to the next uh, and ignoring the rest of the map. I mean, say what you like about Civ 5, and I love it, and Tom Chick doesn't. The great thing about the limit on units in a hex is it makes the whole map important. Uh, it makes every entry point into your empire valuable, and stacks of doom kind of don't do that. Um, so though I do think that it's good to have some stacking, I'm not opposed to stacking in general. Uh, Stacks of Doom is something I thought we'd gotten away from uh, in this genre. Apparently we haven't, but um, at least you know how big the stack is. But look at that goddamn number that's staring you in the face. So once the combat breaks out, though, yeah. Um, well, I, I don't know. So I found the AI, you know, maybe the stacks, stacks of Doom thing is in part there to help the AI. Because one thing it did seem to know how to do pretty effectively is once it went to war, it showed up with a large pile of units and tried to steamroll me. This is an AI that's really aggressive. Uh, it really focuses on war. And I think a part of that is because, well, the, the, the tech tree isn't very long, for one thing. 
Uh, it's a relatively short tech tree, so it doesn't have to put a whole lot of energy into the research. Um, victory is primarily a military victory. You're going to be winning this game by winning the planet, more or less. That's the most common way to win. It's the easiest way to win. Uh, and maybe the only way to win, I'm not sure. Uh, you have the number of buildings you can build, because a tech tree is limited, there are the many buildings you can build. And if the AI has advantages in construction and research, they're going to get there pretty quickly. But even from the very early going, it builds a lot of military units. I mean, you mentioned earlier, you'll be running into battleships before you even know how to sail for some reason. Uh, I guess, parallel with the random tech tree, which we'll get to in a bit, the whole random tech tree thing and how that screws up your sense of timing. Um, but this is, and I think they do get, there's a production bonus somewhere at the default level for them, and they do like to build a lot of units, and given the hostility of the aliens, I certainly don't blame them for that. Um, at the strategic level, I'm not sure I can say it's a smart, it's a smart AI. Um, I will hopefully talk a bit about the diplomacy, because there's some, good and some weird things going on there on the diplomatic side. Um, but I think just it, it's the default. If nothing to build, you're going to build soldiers. And that's advice I largely learned to follow myself was, when in doubt, just build the latest tech, you know, latest tech units, because this is a game where it definitely pays to have a standing army. Because when war breaks out, you probably aren't going to have that much time. Uh, this is not like the, the 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 gap between a declaration of war and fighting that war t seems to be a little shorter here than in Civ. Um, you know, usually things turn very fast here, uh, even if even if you have you're an ocean apart. Um, something I kind of enjoyed though is that there is kind of a cool intermediate uh, intermediate thing between just sort of putting your cities on idle and uh then just cranking out troops which is uh what are the, are they called operations or advancements yeah, yeah operations yeah uh which, which are like these little at will powers that you can sort of like charge up via your cities and then spend uh you know kind of at your convenience that was kind of a that was kind of a nifty touch i thought you know like for instance you can crank out you can store up training for your troops and sort of cast it on an area and the troops in that area will gain experience um that's kind of, that's kind of a nifty thing that was really neat it's kind of like a, it's like a mobilization thing of you you have all these units and you're ready to go to war so you've saved up all this power to say okay we're ready to go to war you have your training go and do it and it's a really nice way of representing the idea of I'm a human beginning to representation. If this is a representation of soldiers all geared up, they have their extra training, they're going to war now, and you've been ready for this, you've been preparing for this, you've been wasting, you've been spending turns on this instead of on growth, science, what have you. And I really, really liked having that option of an operation to you know spend on, okay, now you've got extra experience and now you've got stronger power and go out there and kick some butt and i i can't recall ever seeing that in an empire building game yeah it's it's completely new to me uh and kind of a you know in some ways i think another sort of like almost rts-ish 
uh, touch because like there's another yeah. thing that's very much like the Terran uh, command center scan, uh, the the right. orbital scan where you yes. can just start like it, you can bank these things and just start like sweeping the globe around you, uh, you know, just to see what just to keep tabs on people and uncover new parts of the uh, new parts of the map. It, it's it's very reminiscent of of the command center scan, and I've seen the AI, uh, and I ended up using it the same way. Uh, the AI uses it just to basically keep you under surveillance. Yeah, I mean, I've seen these things. I didn't quite understand them until I saw them popping up near my capital constantly. And the, I was just watching to see how much I had there in my capital, um, how much defense I had there. So I said, oh, well, this is kind of neat. So I would use it to, you know, push back the block and where my scouts could not get or they were fortified and waiting just seeing how far away the enemy army was that was a really neat little power and i these are kind of cool little touches uh to pandora that make it stand out i think i mean if these guys had a budget i they would probably make i think one of the best certainly a game that i would want to buy uh, and play absolutely so you say you want to talk about the diplomacy, and I definitely want to do, and then I want to talk a little bit about what we think of the lore. But tell me about yeah. diplomacy. It's well, first let's start with the writing. The writing's not great. <laughs> uh, part of part of it is the font, um, but the, the diplomacy is kind of weird. I always feel like I can't anticipate. There's not a regular degradation relation. Now this is not un- a unique problem to Pandora. This is a problem with a lot of 4X games. It certainly was with almost all of the Civs up until, I think, uh, the first expansion uh, for Civ 4, where AIs just turn on a dime. And you don't know, someone you haven't had any talking to at all, just, we have a non-aggression pact, you have a trade agreement, we love you. And then they're demanding tribute, even though you haven't even found their capital yet, you know, a turn later. And you're wondering, what do they see that I don't see? Where is this coming from? Um, there's no clear understanding of where these offers are originating. Um, then there, I like the diplomatic options. I like that there's, there are, there's people can praise you, which is a kind of the opposite of denouncing in Civ Five, which I kind of like. Instead of, oh, we announce you, we praise you. And you can accept the praise or be skeptical of the praise. Or they're just buttering me up. So I kind of like that sort of nuance, uh, the variety of responses available to you in the diplomacy. You generally have two or three uh, various options beside the, oh, I'll, I'll accept this no matter what. There are options uh, below that and around that, which, are, which is great. But I never got a great feel Despite all the factions, I mean, all the factions have their ideologies. This is very Alpha Centauri-ish. The diplomacy never quite took on the character of the factions to me. It wasn't like, I'm the religious person, but I can get along fine with the science people, which is something to be kind of anathema, you would think, based on the backstory, based on the lore. So the diplomacy doesn't quite fit with in many ways, the culture they've built around uh, the game itself. Um, so that plus the turning on a dime thing 
kind of worried me. In spite of the fact, I liked the variety of options. I liked the number of ways I could get gold out of people. I liked that there are different ways of sharing information and making alliances work and how people, you had to work your way into an alliance. You couldn't, you get a non-aggression pact. It would take quite a bit to get beyond that with somebody. I liked that. It wasn't just, oh, well, you know, we hate the same people. Let's be friends. You had to actually build up some level of trust, which was nice. But there was, there was a bit of an arbitrariness in places and didn't quite fit the backstory. And I said backstory in a strategy game, so please slap me. So I kind of felt like everything's just very calculated. And I think like it just okay. kind of seemed to me like the AI... The, this game is not even trying the way Civ tries to create relationships with, with momentum. Yeah, so I'm, fine, I'm fine with calculated if the math is clear. Yes, and that's the problem. You just—it's it, sort of that—it's it, sort of the black box problem. It, it also extends back to the early game. Like, what does the AI know? How is it? How is it starting the game so well? What's it? What's going on with it? Uh, because you're kind of by design, sort of off in your own corner of the world, fighting for your life for a long time, and then suddenly people are just acting completely arbitrarily towards you. Um, which definitely definitely creates creates some problems. Uh, w- but with the trends I noticed is that the AI is very opportunistic uh, and it reacts very strongly to whoever's winning the game. Uh, so there's a lot of bandwagoning to defeat uh, to 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 counterbalance the leader. Mm-hmm. Um, but the moment you uh, the the moment you are too weak or vulnerable to really offer anything, you become e- an easy target. The AI will immediately slide all the way down the uh, you know relationship chain and come right for you. And that's right. just was kind of how I came to understand it was that the only thing that's going to put alliances really together is a big bad guy. And the surefire way to get yourself attacked is for the AI to not take you seriously as a threat or power in your own right, and then it will just eat you up. Yeah, and that's. That's I mean, it's an early Civ Five problem, right? They just recognize you have no units, and they'll come and mow you down. Um, but yeah, the the idea of that there, you can't have a friend unless you're balancing against some big bad is an issue. Um, I I just wish the writing was better. I mean, this is this is part of this is part of my old for old fogey heartache here. One of the great things about Alpha Centauri, I mean, we're going to call this a spiritual successor for Alpha Centauri, which is fine uh, because it has. Pretty much the exact same setting. You know, a bunch of Earthlings plop down on a planet, and they divide it by factions instead of by you know language or anything else. So that's very much the Alpha Centauri conceit, and the planet wants to kill them. Blah blah blah. But the writing doesn't necessarily drag me into that world, and that's the whole diplomatic side kind of. If you can have a really strong diplomatic game, and then you have to have the writing to support what's going on. This is a nice alternative fiction. It's a great world, and the mechanics of the game are really, really good. I mean, that's not we complain a bit because we like to play on the show, but the basic mechanics of Pandora are actually quite excellent for, especially for such a small team. There's uh, a lot of really amazing things going on here uh, with. Uh, the, I mentioned the customization and uh, the living world uh, of the planet and the tech tree um, is actually quite simple and short, which means you can see most of it before you get mowed down. But all of this stuff isn't supported by 
an alternative fiction and a diplom- diplomacy that drags me in. And I've, I, I admit, I've got a resistance to science fiction games in general. I've got a very strong resistance to science fiction games because they you really got to do a lot to suck me in. Like I, I can probably count in my, in, on three fingers the number of science fiction strategy games that I really give a damn about. And this is close, but the diplomacy just doesn't have the meat. I mean, there isn't, if we're all just battle, if we're all just balancing against the biggest, baddest threat, then this isn't any more different than any other historical uh, kill the bad boy type strategy game in spite of the ideological components going on or what I'm doing on my planet. Yeah, I found the writing kind of weirdly inconsistent. There's some really cool bits of description and uh, like, uh, you know... The, 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 the voiceover is actually... I love the voiceover. Yeah. Um, but like the first time you lose a city to the aliens, for instance. Yeah. Uh, there's actually kind of a chilling description, right, of like what happened as the, as the defense's yeah. fell and the aliens poured into the city and you read that and it's like Ooh, that's that's pretty terrible yeah um i sh- i really screwed that up um but and that will happen a lot <laughs> yeah yeah but then there's some just there's there's a really weird goofy streak to some of the writing too like if you read the backstory on the imperium which is the militaristic faction right have you read this thing not all of them okay but the one of the imperium is really weird First of all, it's a lot of backstory, like a lot. But they're established as the sort of like, you know, Blackwater type, uh, you know, private military contractor. And, you know, the late Earth, you know, era, all wars were fought by mercenaries, yada, yada, yada. But then there's this this aside that the Imperium faction, this militarist faction that just made planet fall across the stars, um, was owned and operated out of a bodybuilding center in i think like miami beach (laughs) and the entire the entire origin for the basic for basically this like spartan faction in the sci-fi game is like roided up muscle fatties in florida it's like the guys in pain and gain conquered the galaxy god and i i've got to read that no, but it, but it was so it, it's like shit like that. It's like really incongruous because it's like yeah, it's funny. But but thing is, but you never ran into that in the game. It's this whole huge backstory, which is okay. That's clever, but it doesn't have any impact. The game doesn't appear in the game. It's just you know vanity backstory. Yeah, and, and that's and that's the, and that's the problem. I think is is yeah, backstory can be deceptive, right? Because if you did a lot of it. It can lead you to think, you know, it's it's like, but what have you shown the audience? And there's just maybe not enough of that. It's interesting, though, because in like part of it is, uh, you know, again, they didn't have the budget for the voiceover of Alpha Centauri. Alpha Centauri lives and dies by its by its voice, by its, uh, you know, voice actors reading these snippets for discoveries. You know, there's the cynical sounding corporate dude, the, you know, Miriam Godwinson, all this stuff like tells you so much about the world just in the the characterization. And right. this just doesn't have that luxury with the result that everything feels a little bit flatter. I mean, they, you you do get a voiceover for your tech discoveries, but they're all historical quotations, 
read by a very good voice actress, whoever she is. I had her name and it slips mind at the moment. She does a very good job reading them, but they're all historical quotations from our perspective. So it's not like Alpha Centauri, where there's, they're building a new world, so they have new benchmarks of what an important quotation is. And it's all looking forward. Right. Uh, whereas Pandora, and in its tech research, kind of looks back. Uh, which is kind of an odd thing. Um, but we shouldn't, I mean, so that's an issue of there wasn't the writing for these new quotations or they didn't want to ape Alpha Centauri that closely, in which case I understand completely that is, you know, a certainly legitimate design choice. Um, but it does in some ways, like I say, kind of takes you out of who are these people? You know, the religious faction leader comes up to me and says, oh, we have our Korans and Bibles for you. It's like, okay. That's as much religious stuff you're going to say to me. We have Korans and Bibles. Uh, that's, you know, a, that's an interesting combo, my friend. Yeah, I mean, that's... clearly, clearly, we're every religion at once. You know, ecumenical as hell. <laughs> we're not fundamentalists. We're Unitarians, uh, and it so it, it, there's this weirdness of this is as much. This is as. And all the factions have. There are one or two, three quotes that say, well, this is who I am. I'm an army dude. I'm a research dude. It's like, okay, well, you know, show me that. Show me that beyond your bonuses. I can tell you might be getting, but I can't tell because you're all building like 8,000 more units than I am. Um, so the personality is not quite there yet. Here we are saying all these negative things. What is your favorite thing about Pandora? Cause, because we both, we both like this game. Yeah. What is your favorite thing about Pandora? If you're going to recommend this to somebody, why should they buy Pandora? I think my favorite thing is also really tied up with one of my biggest reservations. I, it is a it is a 4X strategy game about colonizing a world where it actually feels like you're colonizing another world. Yes, yeah. And that is unique to me. That's unique yeah. in my experience. You start off pinned inside this teeny little colony fighting for survival, pretty much like every colony historically has started out. And it takes you a lot to expand that first border. You've got to get your population to eight or nine or something before you move beyond your little first starting hexes. Like, oh, and crap. the moment you do, the clock is running for you to start starving. Yeah. So it, oh, God, it yes. definitely has the, like, so as much as I can be a little frustrated with the slow start to this game and the fact that you can meet, you get acquainted with the larger world and like oh god everyone's much more powerful than i am or whatever i have no idea what the state of play is in the world as much as that bugs me a little bit i kind of love this feeling of you are definitely on a shoestring here you are at you know you are at subsistence level yep. um you know colonization fighting for your very life and it's going to take you a long time before you're ever able to start worrying about higher order concerns and i i love that this is really this is really Plymouth Rock. This is a science fiction Plymouth Rock, and Squanto's not going to be there to bring you Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, you are just waiting for your first few turns to figure: can you support? How big an army can you support? How big are the aliens around you? And is there a food hex near you you can expand into? You don't have a lot of control over where the where you'll be expanding into, where you even start. And I, I'm with you. That's my favorite thing about the game is the opening because yeah. it really does have this sense of peril, the sense of place. And the diplomacy doesn't have much of a sense of place. The characters don't have much of a sense of place. But by God, the starting is all about, guess what? You're on 
Planet X. This is like Starbound in many ways. Only the, it's Starbound the 4X. You don't know the planet you're going to end up on, and it might kill you. Have fun. Yeah. Uh, and I really like that early peril, and it forces you to learn a very conservative game from the very beginning. This is a conservative strategy game. It is not about rushing out and grabbing land. I mean, Civ, the longest for many years, a big problem was how do you stop infinite city spam? Well, here's your answer. Make the trees kill you. Yeah. And the fact that the aliens, even if they aren't going to take your city, they will wreck your improvements and send you back into starvation. They will strip you of resources as they, you know, kill your mines. And so, it all, you know, you aren't just like trying to hole up in your city. You're like building forts on the edges of your civilization to protect the farmland. You know, you are garrison. Like, this is kind of how it begins. Is, this, is you know, you... this is manifest destiny. This is really a, it is such an elegant, terrifying start to a game. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, uh, yeah. And that's, that's what I can unreservedly recommend because I don't think, I can't name another game that does this. And I love the customization. I love the simplicity of the customization menus. Um, now, once they get out there in the wild, that's another thing altogether. Uh, but there is a great elegance in the stark choices you have to make over what a unit can or can't do. One of the big things, with the big problems with the Alpha Centauri customization was you could kind of make a unit that could do almost everything. Like I built you know, tanks that could paratroop into enemy territory. Which was, they were expensive, but, you know, I had the production to spare, so why not? Uh, you can't really do that in this game. You have, to, you, have to, you have to choose what your units can and can't do. And I love those stark choices of specialization and the clarity of the workshop. And I really hope that they find a way to get the money to distinguish the units better on the map when they're running around. Uh, but they've done a great job with that in general. So that about covers uh, Pandora. Now, Troy, I believe you had something you wanted to deal with, uh, given that this is our 250th episode. Oh, a few things. I mean, first of all, this is 250 episodes, and this is uh, five years of the best thing I've ever uh, been a part of. Uh, we do want to get uh, now, 250 episodes. I stopped being the official host on episode 100. So we're 150 episodes and those are yours, those last 150. You are the guy who took that over. And I still get most of the email and comments uh, for 3MA, which is kind of unfair. So I want to thank you, Rob, for taking the show in amazing new directions and bringing on so many amazing guests and uh, really uh, making this as special as it is for the last 150 episodes. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I remain, as always, so incredibly grateful for uh, you bringing me aboard and giving me a chance uh, all the way back in episode uh, 40-something. Yeah, it was a while ago. Um, and we have had over 100 guests on this show, which is kind of remarkable when you think of it. Um, many people have been on many times, but we've had over 100 guests, developers, uh, journalists, uh, friends, pundits and a few questions for rob who's been on the show the most who's not an official panelist not an official panelist um let's see we're still counting tom as a as tom a, tom is official panelist he was the yeah. starting guy yeah no tom doesn't count damn i was really hoping that was gonna be my get out of 
get out of question free. Um, okay, give me the top three. How's that? Okay, give me the top okay. three. Okay, let's let's try Soren Johnson. Okay. Uh, Rob Davio. Okay. And um, oh boy, uh, we've had Fraser and Rowan on a lot. Uh, Soren Johnson's been on the most. Okay. Rob Davio second most. Third, John Schaefer. Yes. Fourth, Rowan Kaiser. I was like, everybody's been on the show five times or more. Are Soren Johnson, Rob Davio, John Schaefer, Rowan Kaiser, Dave Heron, Dan Stapleton, Bill Abner, and Jen Cutter have all been on the show five times or more. But we haven't done five F1 episodes. I know. I told her tonight, and she was like, holy shit. She, she, she thought she'd been on twice. <laughs> But no, she, uh, Jen's been on five times, uh, which is great. I will, I'm actually doing a bit of a list for everyone, everyone who's been on the show, and I will thank you all on a forum post uh, because we could not have done this podcast without all of our friends uh, in games, media, and development. Uh, I also want to give a special thanks to, of course, Michael Hermes, who Rob brought on to make this show sound as good as it does. Well, I didn't really bring him on. He volunteered his services uh, most generously, and sometimes I wonder if he if he ever regrets sending me that email, uh, <laughs> given some of the shit we pulled with him uh, and with the audio. <laughs> uh, so hopefully, uh, so Michael, that sentence not shared. Don't tell us. Uh, just let us live in ignorance and uh, know you have our thanks. And I should also a special thanks to Jennifer Sparks, who did our amazing logo, uh, who volunteered her services to do the logo for Three Moves Ahead, which makes us look really, really professional. And of course, a thanks to the three panelists who couldn't be here tonight. Uh, Tom Chick, who, uh, when I started as a writer, uh, gave me a lot of really, really good advice and who told me you need to get Rob Zachney on this show. Uh, Bruce Garrick, who is uh, was a big fan of Flash of Steel when I got started and uh, is kind of one of the coolest, neatest guys I know and always draws a big crowd here on this podcast. And Julia Murdoch, who, God, Rob, there aren't enough nice things we can say about Julia Murdoch. No, there there really aren't. Uh, you know, just as, you know, a mentor and friend and advisor and someone who I would say, you know, just when I was listening to the show uh, in the early days, just knew so much about making a podcast go and come together uh, that it was kind of like, you know, well, how do you, how do you do this? How do you make it work? Well, just kind of follow what Julian does and, uh, you know, keep up. That is precisely why I... I invited him on the show to begin with uh, because he did the podcast. He knew them and gamers of the jobs. We've had so many GWJ people on this podcast. It's kind of crazy. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Uh, so, and of course, to our listeners, uh, 250 episodes is a landmark and uh, I wouldn't have kept doing it if people didn't keep telling me to keep doing it. Um, it is uh, a great honor to always see our listening go up constantly every month uh january 2014 was our best month uh second best month ever uh but our best month without an XCOM show in it <laughs> so uh that was kind of special and the last quarter of 2013 we did kind of amazing numbers and uh we love you all uh we get i get your emails and i read them all i read the forums i don't post the forums as much as i should uh but i do read them and I get your DMs and your tweets, and I'm sure Rob gets them as well. 
and uh, we really appreciate the community we've built here and that we keep going. And now we can tell you that uh, now that we've done 250 episodes, um, we're pretty much finished with strategy, and uh, we can move on to that JRPG podcast that, Troy, you've always wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, next week, I mean, we're going to stop with Winter of War Gaming and go to February of Final Fantasy. Yep. That's it sounds fantastic to me. <laughs> uh and, and February need never end. Oh god. Shoot me. 13 13 2 13 3 who can say? <laughs> as long as they make strategy games, I will the the strategy market keeps changing a lot and I know that uh our audience has sometimes had, you know, questions about you know, why there's so many iPad games, why there's so many board games, where this esports thing come from. Uh, it's because the strategy market keeps changing. And thank you to all of you who've uh, learned with us. I've learned a lot from all of our friends and guests. And I love you all. And that will do it for our 250th episode. Uh, we'll be back next week with uh, Final Fantasy thirteen. And uh, until then, this has been Three Moves Ahead. Good night, everyone, and thank you very much for continuing to listen. Good night. Bye, Pandora. It's neat. Hello. Hello. Hey. Oh, you guys made me disconnect my thing. Oh, you hosebags. Disconnect your what? I'm not going to shoot it. I'm not can't shoot at Troy because you guys like. All right. There's going to be a brief annoying noise while I. Okay, that that will stop in just a moment. Bear with me, yep. sir. As long as you're on the my... show, there'll be lots of brief annoying noises. Hey! Oh, oh, sick burn. <laughs> Dude, you guys are you guys are fucking hose dicks. Hose dicks. That's okay. I, wow. I think that's a good thing having a hose dick, wouldn't you think? Ever, you know. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. I love this show. Couldn't tell from the way you're being complete dick to me the entire episode. Oh God. He oh he's guy you want do I want to perform an armor overrun yes I want to perform a fucking armor overrun because I think how deep and intricate uh, the balance goes. Uh, Troy, just FYI, uh, a couple times as you're talking there, it sounds like you've got a rain stick or something. You don't have a rain stick, do you? No, I'm not even doing anything. Right, or if there's something rubbing across fabric, maybe uh, that could be it. Uh, but... Okay, I'll just uh, it might be my shirt. I'll, I can take my shirt off. Uh, oh yes, yes, and turn on that cam. And this show just went south real quick. <laughs> south or north? Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead. And is that cat? <laughs> I was trying to make him be quiet. <laughs> but yes, the answer to that, right. that query is yes. <laughs> All right. And with me tonight is Tom Chick and Mittens. Oh, that's a terrible thing to call my cat. How dare you? A month after Rob Chick okay, we need proper sound. And now, of course, Bruce has a real mic, which is insane. Which is why he sounded like fucking Winston Churchill last <laughs> week. So. It was Diane Reem and Peter Zosky and Winston Churchill rolled into one. It was insane. That's great. Conversation, guys. All right, thanks for having me. Do you want to do a thanks to Michael Hermes for production or any of that or no? No. no. Fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs>